almost an infinite liability, meaning that your stock price could go near zero or it could go to penny stock. So, um, the question then is, why would you ever exchange land for stock? And, uh, and because land would be a hard asset and, uh, and uh, exchanging that hard asset for stock would, would be, uh, seem to be a risk, a risk that you'd have to consider. And, uh, and you, so your wealth uh, represented in the land that you own or the asset you own being exchanged for uh, a certificate showing a, a ownership to receive a, a, a payment or valuation on, on that ownership uh, through some sort of exchange uh, has to occur. So why would that occur? So the reason why it occurs is that uh, uh, that, that, that the, the investor is either going to be speculating on the price movement or the demand curve that is occurring from the stock. So if, if demand is increasing for say like a, a, a high-tech stock company, then uh, he buys low and then he sells high. And those always sound like great, great ideals, but they, rare, they rarely ever occur where you can buy low and sell high. Oftentimes, oftentimes the, 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 true, the actual occurrence is, is that there's optimism, hear about the optimism on the stock, you hear about the excitement, you hear about people who are making money on the stock, and then you decide to uh, buy the stock, and at that point you're buying high because of the over uh, exuberance on the stock, and then when you realize that you've over, you've over bought, uh, bought on an overvalued stock, then you sell it. So the, the idea of buying on timing is always seems like a bad idea that most likely that you'll end up losing. But now if you reverse this and say, okay, well, the, the reason why someone would exchange land first for a stock is because of um, the potential for a dividend payment. In other words, a uh, company uh, sells a product or a service, they pay their cost of goods, they pay their operation costs, they pay their administration costs, and then what they get is a net income, and then that net income they share uh, in the form of a dividend uh, to their uh, uh, shareholders, holders. So if you own a certain number of shares, then you're entitled to a certain percentage of that income, and that, and that net income is then uh, either uh, can be reinvested back into the company uh, by voter vote of the shareholder or it can be used to pay a dividend. So if it goes in the form of a dividend then you, you would get a, an income from a stock. So that would be an incentive because land does not produce you an income. It's an asset preserver but it doesn't generate an income for you unless you're growing something on it or you're raising uh, agriculture uh, livestock and then selling the livestock and generating income. The land itself will not generate an income for you. So, uh, so then the, 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 that becomes a motivation for investing in stock is the dividend. And historically, the price 
So when markets are heating up, uh, when, when the inflation is, is growing quickly and, and uh, people are investing money into the growth of companies and, and as companies are growing at a faster rate than inflation, then there is uh, uh, there, there's dividend payouts. And if the, if the money is being reinvested back into the company, then the dividend payouts are less, but the stock prices are increasing uh, on expectation of earnings. So those are fundamental uh, principles to investing. And, uh, and you should always be investing on the basis of price earnings ratios. And then you also compare uh, the income to the debt as the form of debt being a form of uh, growth inhibitor. So if a company had a high amount of debt and they had a lot of liabilities on their books, even though they're growing quick, uh, but they have lots of debt, that also could be that, uh, a factor for considering uh, slower, slower growth in the future. So in some ways, I guess you could get kind of uh, uh, a little bit speculative in terms of trying to predict if, uh, you know, if, uh, uh, if a stock price is going to uh, climb what its values are in the future. So you could take the present value of money and then you could calculate based on what you think the growth is going to be, what the future value of the money is. And if the future value of the money in five years is going to be go from $10 to $20, then you, know, you might be willing to pay $15 today. And so based on your expectation of the future value of money can also determine the uh, uh, current value of money that you're willing to pay. And it might be higher than the actual earnings or uh, you know, it might be based on things like uh, market volume you think is going to occur in the future, acceptance of the products and services, and things like that. So uh, it can deviate away from some of the fundamentals, like uh, what is the book value of the company, what is the management of the company, uh, or what you know? What are the services that it's providing, and then also what is the market share acceptance levels and maturity of the of the, of the uh, product? So all those factors come in. Well, where I can see machine learning as being helpful is that, you know you have a lot of companies that you're trying to evaluate in terms of of uh, their earnings. Number one have it rated that high, number two, their book values, if, you, if you're gonna, if this company were to liquidate, you know, how much would the company be worth, uh, their debt to equity, uh, look at, you know, how much debt the company has, how much equity the company has, compare that, weigh that out on the scale, uh, decide whether or not they have some risk, um, and then, you know, their 10 year, five to 10 year earning patterns, is it an upward trend? So if the company is growing, the management's strong, uh, they, they're getting good market acceptance into the, in the sectors they're competing in with, then you might construe that as to be a safe investment. But the, you know, it's not always, that's not always a guarantee. And so things that the machine needs to be looking at is disruptor factors. Uh, for example, you know, uh, when AMD chip 
came first came out. You know, it was it wasn't quite as fast as the Intel chip, and it, it, uh, it had different architecture, it had different features. But today, the AMD chip uh, is amazing. You know, that it has a high computational capability. It's multi-cored. Uh, it's got a good price range, and it is offering a lot of value and uh, gaining lots of market acceptance. And uh, you know, the high-end Intel chips uh, uh, began starting displacing some of these the higher-end Xeon uh, Intel chips, and so it, it became a disruptive factor. And and uh, you know, it merged uh, slow in the lower-cost PC and laptop realm. And uh, a lot of students used AMD chips, and then as uh, it began to become more competitive and the chip quality improved. Uh, it became more accepted as a business uh, level chip and uh, now it's considered to be uh, a server level chip that can be used on blade servers. And so uh, the, the valuations of AMD uh, fluctuate wildly but, the, but still the, it, it looks to be uh, a disruptor of a, of a core technology that was established by Intel. And so you, you see that uh, the machine could be looking at uh, disruptor technologies, disruptor competitors that could be uh, potentially affecting the valuation of this stock. The next sector that uh, could be looked at in finance is bonds. And uh, bonds are an interesting uh, instrument. They're basically an IOU that uh, is established either by corporation or by government. And so what what that uh, IOU uh, does is that they pay a certain interest that's um, locked in fixed interest for a certain amount of time, whether it's a 10-year, 5-year, 10-year, or 30-year. And usually the longer the the term for borrowing the money, uh, the higher the yield. And so uh, there's a relationship to price and yield. And uh, so the higher the yield, the lower the price the bond is moving, the higher the price is moving, the lower the yield. Uh, meaning that, you know, if there's lots of demand for the debt, then uh, the price would be going up and the yield would be going down. So that government won't pay as much. If the, if the price is going down and the yield is going up, it means that, uh, uh, that they're going to have to provide more attractive incentives to uh, borrow the money. And usually, uh, based on the interest, there's a certain maturity amount that the, the bond is worth at the end of the loan period. So, Bonds are really fascinating in the sense that uh, they also have insurance. So a lot of times uh, you can you can have uh, CDS insurance placed on it, and the insurance is provided by a third party. And then basically what that insurance does is, if uh, if there is a default or a, a bond payout is not possible, the insurance kicks in. It's like a default coverage. So that the the person who's loaning the money is guaranteed that they will get their money back. And so uh, if, they, if they don't receive the money back from the corporation or from the government, then the, 
insurance uh, uh, covers the, the remainder amount. So there's a premium that has to be paid for the insurance to cover the rest. So in terms of machine learning, you could analyze whether or not, you know, what the CDS uh, for the security uh, spread is getting. If the higher the spread means the higher the risk, the higher the premium payments. Um, and, uh, and so there could be a kind of an arbitrage that's, uh, uh, or, you know, that where could exist where uh, there might be differences in the risk on different bonds from different countries. And so they, they take uh, uh, maybe a, a, a high yield bond and uh, they buy it monies from a borrowed up from a low low yield bond. And so there's this arbitrage that can exist and then profits can be made. And uh, those are those uh, instruments are are usually large in amounts and the and the exchanges uh, uh, are done uh, through broker houses and clearing houses. So um, it's, it's really interesting, uh, bonds, uh, you know, it's uh, the U.S. bond market, I think it's $150 trillion, it's a massive, uh, uh, it's a massive market, it affects the, bonds affect the stock market, they affect the real estate market, so if the prime rate is going up, then it, it makes uh, loans against uh, real estate more expensive, it slows down the real estate market, um, when bond Yields are low. Uh, the, the real estate markets uh, have more money uh, that they can loan out, uh, and then they 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 did at one time uh, collateralize the loans into bonds, and then they treated the, the debt like a, a financial uh, asset actually, because a bond is considered like a, a, an asset, and so then they would uh, uh, repackage that into bond package and then uh, sell that on the market as an asset. And, then, and so as uh, people who are making their, their mortgage payment were paying into the bond, then there would be a, a dividend payout. And so there was a yield that was being produced and, and uh, so forth. And, and, if, if the, and if there was a high degree of failure in the, making the mortgage payment, then there would be a payout expectation and there would be a possibility that insurance policies against the bonds would be activated and, uh, and so there would, and if there were, they were unable to make the payout then there could be a, a bond crisis as which we saw in 2008 where they had the mortgage backed securities they had, they had a bond crisis so uh, bond market is largely a function of risk a lot of calculated uh, models that they're used to analyze risk uh, and the expectation of whether or not you believe that interest rates will remain low due to the Fed policy or uh, that interest rates will climb and strengthen against uh, to strengthen the dollar. So if you have a strong currency, if the U.S. Uh, dollar is strong, then the dollar index uh, is, uh, remains high against other currencies.
high that the, the bond market will not pay out its dividends, the government won't pay, be able to collect taxes and, and make its payments, that uh, the dollar index will drop against other currencies. So the bond market does affect the stock market, it affects the real estate market, and maybe it, in some ways it could affect the uh, commodity market if you said that, you know, let's say we're moving into a deflation economic economy where uh, uh, the, uh, now the yields are going up um, and uh, the economy is slowing down, money is getting harder to acquire, uh, loans are, are, not, are tight, tighter, then um, and uh, you know the risk of default has caused the loan yields to go up uh, to cover the risk of potential loss. Then uh, uh, you could see possibly that the economy is starting to slow down economically, and then as things slow down, the purchasing on commodities could could be slowing, and that could then uh, affect the commodity market. So the bond market could affect the uh, commodity market. By, as a, as an indicator that the economy is slowing. Um, the next area of financials, which uh, is probably more difficult to talk about and understand, is derivatives. And the derivative is um, is where you have one side that's a loser, one side that's a winner. And so, basically, it's an instrument where it. Uh, balances a win-loss. So on one side, if things are going in favor of uh, that party, then they're winning. And on the other side, they're losing. And uh, there are all kinds of derivatives in the financial market. Uh, there are interest rate swap derivatives. There are over-the-counter derivatives. There are just regular derivatives. But these derivatives account for about one for four quadrillion dollars. So, you know, I think trillion is a large number. Take that, multiply that a thousand times, and that's a quadrillion. That's a, a number that is massive. And uh, uh, so the, the derivative market occupies things like uh, REITs, which are linked to the real estate market, interest rate swaps, which are linked to the bond market. Um, they have uh, um, other, uh, let's see, they have others that are related to the gold market. Um, but, you know, I kind of think of the derivative market as like this huge financial cancer. It, it can't be good. Uh, it's not tightly coupled to the assets like in the commodity market and uh, it's all based on the, the contract of the derivative and you know whether or not uh, there's a winner loser and equilibrium and equilibrium is where the group agrees on consensus uh, to a certain decision so the more equilibrium you have in the system, uh, the higher the derivative payout will be. So while you have a high disequilibrium, derivatives are, you have winner and losers, it's oscillating, and uh, 
where we saw in 2008 the banks were betting against the hedge funds. They were betting that interest uh, rates would remain low and, and, uh, and, uh, and that the <clears throat> housing market would, would continue to climb for, I read a book said 70 years, you know, it says the housing market is uh, constantly declining for 70 years. It's a safe investment, you know, and uh, never, they had never seen a, a housing correction. But uh, when the 2008 occurred, the cycles, uh, business cycles seemed to uh, have been over-optimistic. Uh, there was a, a strong deviation from the price earning uh, index uh, ratios. And uh, we saw the stock market move back to the mean, which was around 7,000. So around 7,600, it hit, stopped and reversed and, and uh, started to climb again. But uh, reversion to the mean occurred. And it did exactly as a conservative, fundamental investing set of uh, Real estate markets, housing dropped, uh, price to earning, uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, 401k retirements you know, fell by 50%. A lot of the investors, says, uh, you know, a lot of the financial investors said, oh, don't sell, don't sell, just hold on, it'll come back up, you know. And, uh, you know, it did, it came back up and, and uh, people wondered why, but they didn't really care why. Uh, they just were glad that it did because they were concerned that, you know, they would have to work an additional number of years to, to earn back the money they had lost in their 401k. sector is can be influenced by the political sector 
and uh, as more as uh, uh, Peter Drucker said, is the politics should never uh, directly interfere or uh, to influence business too much, because the the reason being is uh, it can lead to bad decisions uh, uh, in terms of operation of business and, and as a result of bad decisions and bad investments uh, that businesses can be liquidated and they can't go out of business so there is that sector of the of the derivatives that is still a concern in my mind uh, the interest rate swaps uh, still are playing a heavy factor in the financial markets and I think we'll see uh, more we'll see more a trend towards in uh, the housing market um, if the de deflationary economics begins to become more prevalent. And, uh, you know, machine learning can be an important aspect to analyzing the risk and the trends. And, and uh, one of the big things that people are scared of is what they don't know. And so, you know, the machine can be analyzing more data and helping reassure trends and, and helping uh, make better decisions and sector, I, I think, uh, you know, and it relates to, to finances, savings. And, uh, you know, it's almost like if you ask people today, you know, do, do you save your do you save money? And the, 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 uh, the question is, is do, you, do you mean do I take a portion of my paycheck and I invest it in my 401k? Yes, I do that. Do I I take a portion of my money and invest it into stocks? Yes, I do it. But, you know, the key word is they're saying invest rather than save. Uh, save means to take a certain amount of your money and to put it into a, uh, what I would call a data warehouse. In other words, uh, it should not be directly influenced by inflation. And it should not be exposed by the risk of uh, inflation. And so if today I have $1 of buying power, tomorrow when I retrieve the money, it should have $1 of buying power. Uh, so let's say if I have a basket of goods I could buy today for a dollar, tomorrow it should be able to buy that same basket of goods. And uh, you could argue, well, that basket of goods got cheaper because things got more efficient in mass production. The raw commodities were uh, became more plentiful, and so the price came down. And uh, or, or you could say land became more scarce. Uh, the raw resources became harder to acquire, so the demand for the products increased as the populations increased and so the prices went up but uh, if uh, uh, what what inflation is is when uh, when uh, the Fed produces more money dilutes the money supply increases the money supply then it affects the buying power of the dollar so instead of the dollar being worth one dollar is worth now 
ratings in that sense could be uh, kind of defeating, especially if if uh, if the uh, uh, interest rates are low and the inflation is high. You now have a divergent uh, diverging factor that the interest rates that you're receiving for the money that you're saving is not keeping up with the inflation and so now your money is, is in the warehouse is decreasing but I would say you should still save uh, and I personally like to now go back to the commodity market I like to to go and buy a commodity because I like the fact that the commodity like land was the original wealth and that uh, as land, as economy inflates, then uh, land values go up. And as, as the land, uh, as the economy deflates, the land prices go down. But the nice thing is, is that the land prices uh, probably adjust at the same rate to the basket of goods that you're buying. So if you're buying food, you're buying cars, all those uh, factors are, it's probably adjusting um, along with them. So if you're in a period of inflation, you notice that the car prices are going up, they're more expensive, housing prices are going up, then you're probably noticing also that your land values have gone up. The only negative on land ownership is that you have to pay uh, property tax, and so that is a liability. And so every year you have to uh, take some of your your income and divert that to pay property tax. Um, whereas other commodities at this time don't have uh, property tax, some of those commodities are like uh, 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 gold or silver, and they don't have a property tax, and you could. Uh, you can purchase those, put those in your vault, and you can save those as a, a form of savings. And the machine learning uh, in those areas, it can be analyzing how uh, the price is moving between each one of the commodities. So you can say, well, let's, I want to study how silver moves with gold during periods of high high instability so you can look at key uh, events uh, in history and, and look at the factors that are related to uh, those events like it could be uh, instability it could be war it could be uh, uh, there could be some sort of uh, financial disruption and look at the like for example when uh, uh, Spain became unstable in its finances when Ireland became unstable in its finances when Portugal became unstable in its finances when it's revealed that uh, you know, Germany had loaned out lots of money to them and that the, and the company and countries were not capable of paying back their debts Greece became unstable. Well, a lot of the European countries that were not high produ high, in high production mode uh, and they had too much debt 
became unstable. Uh, you, the machine could then correlate how, during those periods of high instability, that uh, gold and silver prices moved. Well, we saw that there was some correlation there during high crisis periods where we saw silver move up to $40 an ounce. So it went from five, six dollars an ounce, clear up to $40 an ounce. So what caused that incredible movement? You know, why was silver moving at the same rate that gold was? And then why did eventually did silver deviate from gold where it was trading at uh, 60 times less the value than gold where historically it's usually traded at 40? Why is there, was there such a huge gap between the silver prices to the gold prices? And, uh, you know, maybe those questions can't be answered, but definitely in the data, the machine can be making predictions that, you know, it could be analyzing larger amounts of information. It could be analyzing what was going on in the futures market. You know, were there, were there artificial buying and selling that was going on through on paper, and uh, what was causing those high number of contracts to be generated? So you can see how the commodity market was affecting the real assets. So you had the futures and, and they were affecting the real asset of that commodity. So um, it was, it's kind of interesting when you think about it uh, in those terms and uh, when you can ask uh, machine learning questions, uh, hypotheticals, and then through access of different databases and can pull different features out that you might be interested in and provide uh, visual dashboards or, or trends to, to show you what is going on in, in those commodity markets and what's going on in the future markets and, and uh, you know, gathering up this huge amounts of data and, uh, and then analyzing it making decisions or, or showing how things were trending or clustering and painting a bigger picture of what might have been happening in those time periods. And also making predictions of those, those same behaviors might, might be repeating. Um, so in that sense, the financial market uh, is largely about information and uh, the accuracy of the information and also the interpretation of the information. You know, can you go from data to rules to knowledge? And then once you get to the knowledge part, uh, uh, can you understand how the way the world works? And I think that that's a, an important aspect uh, that that machines can can offer in the financial world, and especially as financial instruments uh, have become so important. You know, going back to bonds, you know, I, I, I look at the junk bond market, you know, it's got a, it's interesting, I was reading how uh, pensions have positioned into the junk bond market looking for higher fixed income, you know, so you have, you know, trillions of dollars, uh, uh, for example, in Japan, they had $2.3 trillion in their pension funds, and, uh, you know, a portion of that money was invested into the junk market. And uh, so you're talking, you know, uh, junk bonds. And what they are is they're bonds that corporates, you know, they can come with corporate debt. Uh, they 
needed financing. They, they don't have uh, a proven commodity yet. They, they, uh, you know, they're, they're on fast growth and they're looking for money to uh, build the future. So they, you know, they're borrowing money and they're paying a, a high percentage on, on the money and then they're uh, attempting to, you know, introduce to the market new products and services that hopefully will create demand and, uh, and then they will get earnings and then they'll be able to pay, pay off their debt. So that's the idea of the junk bond market. But about every decade, about 12% of the junk bond default. And so, you know, there's a, there is a certain percentage of failure that's always common in the cycle of the junk bond market. And so when things are starting to default, risk factors are going up. And, uh, you know, these assets that are uh, very stable, like pension funds, that uh, begin to lose uh, money uh, or lose, not be as profitable, I guess would be a way to say it, not be as profitable or not gain as much in their fixed income at the risk they're taking for their investments so they can lose some of their investment and, uh, and not be gaining as much in their income. And so the, the combination of that uh, uh, would uh, then concern their pension uh, holders. And, and then, uh, you know, there's requirements that they have to remain uh, a certain level funded. And so as the pension values, valuations and amounts go down, then there would be a requirement that more money be fed in to fund the, the pensions and, and that that would cause uh, stress on the, on the uh, companies that are, are feeding the pensions. Uh, and, 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 and there's insurance on pensions, so there, there could be some pension policies that have to be activated to try to cover for some of the losses. And so the risk factors, again, have to be weighed out. You know, is the risk factor high enough that it causes alarm or is it, you know, enough that it can be tolerated and everything uh, continue on as just uh, as, as adjustments in the economy are, are affecting the pensions. And, uh, but, you know, uh, the junk bond market uh, being a risk uh, would be something that machine learning could be applied to to analyze it risk and the risk factors are going up, uh, key indicators could be going off, alarms could be going off, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, pension managers could be analyzing their risk. So those are kind of some of the things that I've been thinking about where machine learning could be applied to the financial sector. It's uh, you know fairly complex and robust discussions. There's a lot more that probably could be talked about. Uh, but those are some of the highlights for right now.